My name is Brandon, a pastor of preaching here at Sojourn Heights. If you are new, uh, if you are new to Sojourn, uh, we follow something called the church calendar, uh, which is simply this: that for centuries the church has um, divided the year uh, into seasons, uh, where we focus on different aspects of the life of Christ. And so you uh, may have heard of Epiphany. Uh, I'm sorry, Advent. Advent was a season we just went through where. You prepare for the advent, the coming of Christ. And now we're in a season that we call um, Epiphany, where we remember the life of Christ. And so we've been tracing through uh, the book of Matthew in, in Advent, looking at the early portions of the coming of Christ. And now we're looking at different aspects of the life of, uh, of Christ. And so last week we saw the deity of Christ. And then this week uh, we hit really what is in the middle of one, of one of Jesus' most famous teachings. And so let's get started. I have a... Uh, I have a five-year-old son uh, who loves to, to work out. Uh, I, <laughs> I know, I don't get it either. Uh, uh, but he loves to do push-ups uh, with me. He loves to do burpees with me. Burpees, if you don't know, uh, it's this hit, like awful thing that some torturous person invented where you fall down, jump up. I don't even know how to do it right. I had always planned to use burpees as punishment. Like, oh, you backtalk me, son? Five burpees now. But he loves doing them. So it's like, that's not, that's not going to work. Uh, but he's been asking uh, if he could come to the gym with me. Uh, and so last week, I finally broke down. I said, yeah, come on. Uh, and so I go to the gym, and I'm there, and I'm, I'm, I'm bench pressing. Uh, I work out with about 150 pounds. That's not true. 130, sometimes 100, maybe less. And, uh, and he was asking, can I, uh, can I try? Uh, and, uh, and so I said, sure, buddy, lay, lay down. Uh, and so I took the bar with 150 by that 90 uh, pounds, and... Um, told him to put his arms up, get ready to grab it, uh, and, and, I, and I held it up there, and I said, as soon as I let go, buddy, um, you've got to just fight, like you've got to hold it and fight, and so I was held over him, and then I just let go, and I stepped back. I'm kidding. I didn't do that. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't do that. It would have been impossible, right? He's five. He can't bench 150 pounds. It, 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 would have, it would have crushed him. The weight of that bar would have crushed him. Uh, in our text today, Jesus is going to give a command to his followers, to you and to me, that if you don't know what to do with it, the weight of this command will crush you. Let's look at it. Verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. All right, let's, let's talk about how we normally read the Bible. This guy named Richard Dawkins, uh, he's a pretty well-known atheist, uh, obviously much we disagree on, but uh, he said this one time, he, he said the God of the Old Testament arguably is the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Uh, I don't think the God of the Old Testament is fiction, but I do think that Richard is on to something. What he's on to is how we normally, how many of us often read the Bible. Often we read the Bible as if either, either there are two gods there's the angry God of the Old Testament, the gentle, loving God of the New Testament, or we read it as if there's two Bibles. There's the Old Testament about Israel, New Testament about Jesus. Old Testament about law, New Testament about grace. And Matthew is countering both here. And when he says, um, I, I came to fulfill law and prophets, that's, I think, shorthand for the, uh, for the Old Testament. And Jesus is coming and saying, hey, listen, I... I didn't come to tear down, destroy, get rid of the Old Testament. I came to fulfill the Old Testament. There is a redemptive story that's being told. 
and that redemptive story in the Old Testament that was unfolding, unfolded into me. I came to fulfill what it was writing about, not to get rid of what it was writing about. And so I want to define the words that Jesus uses, and then I want to illustrate uh, using those two definitions to, to maybe, I think, help us understand um, what he means by abolish and fulfill. So the word abolish, uh, it, it literally means to destroy a structure, to, to demolish a structure and fulfill. This one's my favorite definition of all. Fulfill literally means fill full. You with me? And so uh, if I could illustrate it this way, uh, let, me, let me do it like this. Um, imagine the law as a house. Imagine the law as a house, that the law, um, it, it encompasses the foundation, the framing, the, uh, the, the roof, the, uh, the, the, the walls. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, listen, I, I, didn't, I didn't come to destroy that house and start over. I, I came to fill that house. I came to put furniture in it, to hang pictures on it, to paint it, to make the house a home. I came to live inside that house. I didn't come to knock it down. I, I came to live inside the house. To put it in theological terms, um, Jesus doesn't see significant discontinuity between the Old and the New Testament. There's never going to be a place where, where you see Jesus saying, hey, I, I, I get it, uh, but we don't have to worry about that anymore. Um, it's not relevant. He says, no, no, no. Like there, there's, uh, there, there is harmony between me and the law, that the law is a structure that I was meant to step into and fulfill, which is why Sinclair Ferguson, you're going to hear a few quotes from him, one of my, one of my favorite theologians anywhere, um, looks at the Bible and says this, for unless we are persuaded that God has shown his grace in his law, as well as in his son, all we will hear at Sinai, where, where God gave the Ten Commandments, is thunder and lightning. Or to quote Luther, Martin Luther, the leader of our Reformation, the law is the key which opens the hidden treasure of the gospel. So here's what happens. When, when you divide the Bible, when we functionally divide the Bible into um, Old Testament, one God, New Testament, another God. Old Testament law, New Testament grace, complete discontinuity between the Old and the New Testaments is either uh, we end up living a all grace, no law, or an all law, no grace life. So let me explain that. Or we treat the Bible, I should say, as if there is no grace in the law and no law in grace. That needs some explanation. God didn't have to create. Let me, let me explain the um, we, we treat the law as if there's no grace in it. Um, God didn't have to create the world. Like, we're aware of that, right? Like, the fact that you're sitting here and you're breathing, um, and uh, we, we have the heater on right now when it's perfect weather outside, which makes no sense. Uh, the, the fact that we get to uh, leave here and shake our fist in anger, looking at our life and going, God, this doesn't make sense. Like, you understand that God didn't have to create you in the first place. That this world doesn't have to exist. Everything from Genesis 1 on is an act of grace that God would be willing to create in the first place. God didn't have to then form a people. He didn't have to say, hey, Abraham, go, leave your family, uh, go to another country. And then he didn't, he didn't have to form the nation of Israel. And then you know what he didn't have to do? He didn't have to reveal himself to Israel. There is a reason that 
Israel was excited about the law, that every nation had a God, and our God is the God who said, hey, this is what I'm like. This is who I am. The giving of the law in and of itself was an act of grace. But the flip side, and this is probably more pertinent to many of us, um, is we, uh, we, we treat grace as if there's no longer any need to obey the law. Now, the, the law in the Old Testament is divided into three categories. Um, one of those categories is called the moral law, uh, and, and it's the Ten Commandments. Think Ten Commandments here. Now, do you know the New Testament repeats nine of the Ten Commandments? Do you know that we shifted to Sundays where we worship on the Sabbath day, the one not mentioned? Did, did, did you know that when Paul, uh, the author of much of the New Testament in Ephesians 5, is saying, hey, children, hey, hey, children of believers, you know how you should live your life? You need to honor your father and mother. Why? It's the first commandment with a promise. He was saying, hey, listen, you, you, you want to know what it looks like to live a Christian childhood? Honor your father and mother. Why? It was written in the moral law. And so here's what um, happens uh, in, a, uh, uh, in a divided Bible. Now, let me, let me clarify something. No, no one is justified by the law. Like, no one is justified by the law, but it doesn't mean the law is not a rule of life. Doesn't, doesn't mean that the Ten Commandments aren't still here to guide us, which this is, this is really not complex, right? Uh, no, no one in here is allowed to murder their neighbor, right? No, no one thinks, you know what? God is so generous and gracious, I can just go act whoever I want. No one thinks, hey, you know what? I can embezzle some funds. God is gracious. I have grace. I'm free. No one thinks that. Right? No, no one thinks, you know what? I can lie. I should lie. No, no one thinks lying as a, is a good thing. Like, this is not complex biblical theology here. But here's what happens when we divide the Bible. Um, it's going to send us in one of two directions because it leads to a divided Christian. A divided Bible leads to a divided Christian. We end up living in all law, no grace, or in all grace, no law, life. And so those of us who live this all law, no grace default, um, we, we end up treating obedience as if it's adding to the law, adding X's and Y's and Z's to the Scriptures adding commands of the scriptures, we wind up becoming um, this judgmental, frustrated, angry, no one's good enough, certainly not myself. Like no, one, no one around me does what they're supposed to do. Why can't they just? All the while, you're sitting alone in your room going, why can't I just? And what happens is we call things that aren't sin, sin. And so let me illustrate low-hanging fruit here. Here's what happens with drinking. Uh, we, we, we look at the scriptures and we go, hey, drunkenness is clearly a sin, therefore all drinking is sin. Or, or we live all grace, no law, and obedience becomes irrelevant. doesn't matter what I do, there's grace. And, and I think this one is pertinent to us. Not that the other one's not, but in our little community, I think this one is. Because here's what happens. We end up calling obedience legalism. And so you're, you're out at a, at a restaurant, uh, you're hanging with some in your parish, or you're uh, with a member of the church, and y'all are chatting, and you, you have a glass of wine, and then someone's like, no, but I'm, I'm more of an IPA kind of person, and so you do that, and then you have a second, and, um, and then you go, hey, I'd, 
hey, waiter, I'll take a, you don't snap, don't snap at anybody, okay? But you say, hey, waiter, I'll have a third, and the other person says, hey, listen, I, I just, I'm done, I, I have a two-drink limit on my life, and you look at them functionally and go, man, that's crazy, like, two-drink, that ain't in the Bible, man, that ain't in the scriptures. Man, have you never heard of grace? Have some fun. All the while, they're just trying to be obedient to the commands of God. This, this pendulum swing, all law, no grace, all grace, no law, it's not new. It was happening in Jesus' day. And so now in verse 18, he starts to drill into it. For truly I say it to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He's just saying, hey, listen, don't stay with me. Uh, I, I'm not getting rid of the law. It's not going and like, I'm here to do it. I'm here to fulfill the law. Remember, it's the house that I'm going to come and live in. I'm here to accomplish all of it. I'm not scratching any of it. There is nothing of the law that's not going to be accomplished. Keeps going, verse 19, therefore, therefore, because of that, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And let me explain what's happening here. The, the rabbis of the day, they were dividing the law. Uh, and they would divide the law into what they called light and heavy. And so there were light laws, uh, your beard, gardening. right? And then there were heavy laws, murder, theft. And so what they were saying is, hey, listen, um, it... it like, you, you, you probably want to obey all of it, but listen, if you, if you break anything, make sure you break the light law. Don't break the heavy law, because the heavy law is really a big deal. And Jesus is coming in and saying, hey, hey, listen, um, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, that's the light law, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, i.e. your rabbis, they'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever teaches and does them, he will be called great in the kingdom of heaven of heaven. And if you're in their shoes listening to Jesus, you're, you're going to have a couple of reactions. One, one, you're going to know, okay, wait a minute, what's going on here? Either I'm going to dismiss you or I got to take you serious because you just said my rabbi doesn't know what he's talking about. Y you just said that my rabbi is least in the kingdom of heaven. My, my, my guy who I follow his example in how to obey the law you just said he's least in the kingdom of heaven. But, but it would have also done this. It would have also created some serious spiritual tension in their souls. Why? Because what did Jesus say? Not, not just the one who teaches, but the one who does them all. And they would have gone, but I don't do the law. Like, I, I don't do all of it. Like, I don't, I don't do all of the law. What does this mean for me? Like, I'm going to take your words seriously. What does this mean for me, Jesus? Like, I, I don't obey the law. Like, I know me. Listen, the people listening to Jesus knew themselves like you know yourself. Ouch. And you know what else? The people listening to Jesus knew themselves like I know myself. And they're going, what, what in the world could that possibly mean for me which takes us to verse 20, where Jesus says what it means for you. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, 
the groups of people who did the law. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so they're listening going, are you kidding me? Like, what in the world are you talking about? Like, more righteous than what? Like, there is no one more righteous than them. Like, they are the example. They are par excellence when it comes to obeying the law. There is no one better. Like, I can't be more righteous than them. This is impossible. But it's not just impossible. It's also confusing, is it not? Right, because what it, Jesus spent the majority of his ministry saying what? Hey, hey, the Pharisees, you guys, y'all are unrighteous. Like, you're not righteous, you're unrighteous. And now he's saying, hey, listen, unless your righteousness is more than theirs, these unrighteous, like, you don't get in the kingdom of heaven. Confusing. Unless, unless Jesus is speaking of another righteousness all together. You see, you, you can't understand our passage, 17 to 20, uh, without its context. It's, it's a unit of thought uh, from Matthew 5.17 down to verse 48. And what comes right after this is Jesus has six, uh, hey, you've heard it said, but I say unto you statements. Hey, you, you've heard it said, um, you shall not murder, but I, but I say to you, whoever's angry with his brother. Hey, you, you've heard it said, um, you shall not commit adultery, but I, I say to you, whoever looks at a woman with lust has already created, not created, committed adultery with her in his heart. He does this six times, and in the context, what he's saying is that the Pharisees externalized the law. I'm here to internalize the law. That they lived the law in their actions, I'm calling you to live it in your heart. They... They lived the letter of the law. I'm calling you to obey the spirit of the law. And then he concludes in verse 48 with a summary statement. And this is the one that unless we know what to do with it, crushing. You therefore, don't hear the you therefore as you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You want to know the kingdom of heaven? It's not actions. Not just in actions, but, but even in your heart, you have to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The bar just got raised. And if I said, show of hands, who, who in here goes, I got that. Like, I can do it. I can do it. Like, I can do this. Like, I can, like, no more lying. Like, I, I can do it. I'm, I will try, Brandon. I can do it. I can't. I lied just two days ago to my kids. They're scrolling the channels. They saw American Ninja Warrior, wanted to watch it, and I said, we don't have that channel. We have the channel. I didn't want to fight. None of us can do it. But what if I told you this? What if I told you Leon Morris, another theologian, said, hey, is it not also a promise? Why would he say that? Well, he would say that because the, the Greek construction says that it's also a promise. And how does it happen? How does this impossible command become a promise? It happens on the cross. But in the cross of Christ where Jesus looks at your life and says you, you can't live up to the perfection of the Father. I had to do it for you. Um, and so I'm going to go and 
die for you, that this law exposes your need. It's like this x-ray machine stuck over your heart showing you the, the, the brokenness of your life, laid over Jesus' heart showing his holiness and perfection. So your need for the cross, and it's in the cross of this impossible command, impossible promise, collide, which is why Jesus fulfilling the law, living the law, is a biblical imperative that he had to live the law so that he could die for you, that, that it's his life that makes his death possible. Now you understand that, right? That apart from the sinless, perfect life of Christ, Christ's death is utterly meaningless. Like he, he can't die in your place if he didn't live in your place. Him obeying the law is of absolute importance in the scriptures. And here's what makes Jesus such a revolutionary. He wasn't another religious teacher who showed up and said, hey, listen, you want to know how to get to God? Live like this. You want to know how to make God happy? Do this. Hey, you want to know how to please God? Don't do this. He is the one who showed up and said, you know, you know, you know what? You, you can't. You, you, the standard is perfection with your heavenly Father. You can't, so I'm going to do it for you. And then, since you didn't, I'm going to go and die as your substitute in your place for you. I mean, on the world's stage of his day, utterly revolutionary. On the world's stage of today, utterly revolutionary. And this, and what this does, this both defines what a Christian is, Right, that a Christian is not someone who looks at their life and says, "Hey, I'm like I'm pretty good. Like I'm a good dude. Like I'm, man. I mean, as far as women go, like I'm pretty secure. As far as men go, I'm pretty honest. Like I'm a like relative to this guy and that. Like I'm not ISIS. Like I I haven't done anything horrific like that. I'm certainly no Hitler. In fact." Um, I'm also not lazy like the guy that I work with. I, I'm, I'm not lazy like the lady that I work with. Like this woman's always complaining. This guy's always griping. I don't do that. Like I'm, like I'm an honorable guy at work. My neighbors know. My neighbors know that if they come to my house, they can count on me to help them. I'm a good person. You, you know what? You probably are. Jesus might look at you and go, man, there's no doubt. And that is honorable and good and right. But let me ask you a question. Are you perfect? Are, like, are you perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect? See, the, the Christian is not someone who relies on their obedience for acceptance with God. A Christian is someone who relies on Jesus' obedience for their acceptance with God. It also redefines what the Christian life is. One more quote from Sinclair Ferguson. This is the last one, I think. The law... The law is not the means of salvation except in the sense that Christ kept it for us. But the law, it is. And he's speaking of Ten Commandments here. It is the moral shape that salvation takes because it is the moral shape of Christ's life. And we are in Christ now, living out his life, which conform perfectly to the law. Translate. What, what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means that from a transformed heart, you live a life of obedience. And watch how this attacks both the all grace, no law, 
or the all law, no grace person. Because this is like Christ's life lived out in you. You can have immense grace for yourself when you stumble. You know why? Because he did. He had enough grace for you that he was willing to die for you. And if he's willing to die for you, then, then you can extend that same grace to yourself when you stumble. But you know what else it means? Because this is Christ's life being lived out in you. You can live a life of obedience. Why? Because he is holy and he obey- and you can live his life through you. It means, means that if you say, I follow Jesus, but obedience isn't part of your life. And I don't mean if you struggle to obey. I mean if you're just going, man, I just don't, I just don't care. Like I just don't know that I care. I don't know that I need to obey. Like I don't uh, like like grace. Like if there's God and He's He's loving, if there is a God, um, I have no doubt that He would accept people like me. I don't have to worry about obeying the commands of God. Then you need to reevaluate whether you are following Jesus or not, because following Jesus looks like following His life, which is a life of obedience. It means that our parishes these smaller communities that meet in the homes, that, that blanket our map, that's our map that we want to have saturated with pin after pin after pin after pin. So it might be these smaller communities of men and women living life together. It means that these parishes that meet in these homes, they cannot simply be civic clubs. They can't be. They have to be communities that cultivate obedience from a transformed heart. If they're not, then they need to become. Why? Why? You, you have friends, and I have friends. And listen, if you're one of the friends that got invited today, know that you got invited because they desperately want you to know and love Jesus. And we have neighbors who need to see Christ's life in us. And Christ's life looks like a holy life set apart. These need to be communities that cultivate obedience to Jesus so that Jesus can be put on display. At some point, we have to stop being so hip and cool that we are worried about what people think of us and be more concerned with what the Lord might think of us. It means that when anger flares up, to to use two of Jesus' six examples, or when lust flares up, I need an action plan for my heart, not just my mouth or my eyes. It means that when I'm angry with one of you, and like I'm boiling, and I'm ready to snap, like I, I, I need an action plan for how to deal with what's inside my heart, not just, uh, you know, relational management. It means that when lust is flaring up men and women, When lust is flaring up in me and I'm feeling tempted, I need an action plan for my heart, not just protection for my eyes. We need protection for our eyes, but it can't stop there. It's got to cultivate the heart that from a transformed heart we might live a life of obedience. It means that I better be in my Bible enough to see the heart of God in the commands of God. Because if I'm not in my Bible enough to see the heart of God in the commands of God, you know what I have to do? You you know what you have to do? You have to trust your heart. And you know where your heart's going to lead you? It's going to lead you where my heart's going to lead me. All law, no grace. All grace, no law. Every single time. 
lest you say, I simply upon my own power can live the life of Christ. I, I need to be in my Bible enough to see the heart of God so that my heart might be transformed to his so that I might live bringing them together, the commands of God, so I might live out the life of Christ. Let me tell you what happens when, when this when the, when the Bible starts coming together like this and you see Jesus woven in throughout it, the heart of God, the commands of God, all of a sudden, Jesus is not simply my little Redeemer and Savior. He is this glorious, majestic God that has redeemed us and is changing us and is transforming us and is actively right now fulfilling his promise to make you like the Father. And Jesus becomes glorious. Impossible command became an impossible promise that because of the cross you have. This is the life that's on the table. This is the life that we're meant to cultivate in one another. And it's the life that our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends need to have. Let's pray. Father, we do celebrate that you would um, send your son into the world, that you would have created the world in the first place, that Jesus would live the life that we can't live, that he would die the death that we should have died. And I, and I pray for those of us in this room right now who are living all law, no grace. I pray we'd learn to have grace for ourselves, have grace for others. And for those who are living all grace, no law, I, I, I pray that we, would, that we would come to see the beauty of obedience. We need your help. We can't do this on our own. Uh, we are a desperately needy people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.